Hi, I'm Paul Haverschrud, host of The Cost of Living. It's a show about money and how it shapes our lives. In big ways, like why inflation could get worse if we all make more money. Here's the hard truth in all of this. Workers are going to have to eat that real wage loss. And small ways, like what's the fastest way to order fast food? That first Big Mac that comes out of the kitchen is going to the drive-thru. Check out The Cost of Living. We're on CBC Listen or wherever you get podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Peter Armstrong. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight, Post's script. Under a long-awaited agreement with the federal government, Google has agreed to pay news organizations. A representative of the private broadcasters says it may be breaking news, but it doesn't fix the news. Reworking class. Afghanistan's former education minister pitches her proposal for getting girls in the country back to school by engaging with the Taliban. Best Paid Plans, a Financial Times journalist, walks us through a newly unsealed indictment that details an alleged $100,000 plot to murder a sick separatist on U.S. soil. Tunnel Visionary, an expert involved in the rescue of 41 construction workers in India, describes the joy and relief he felt when those workers were finally freed after 17 days underground. Ghost writer in the machine, we speak to the verifiably human reporter who discovered Sports Illustrated articles with fake bylines and computer-generated headshots, which she believes were written by artificial intelligence. And fangs of regret, the tale of a venomous snake whose head was stuck in an energy drink can got us thinking about the people we've talked to who helped animals get their heads out of things and found that unjarring experience a jarring experience. As it happens, the Wednesday edition, radio that containers multitudes. Good news. When you Google the news, there will in fact be news to Google. Today, the Canadian government announced it had reached a deal with Google to pay news companies for posting their links through the Online News Act. After months of tough negotiations and the threat that in three weeks Google would block Canadian news, Heritage Minister Pascal Saint-Ange says they have finally settled on a number. For more than a decade, news organizations have been disrupted by the arrival of large digital platforms like Google. In Canada, nearly 500 media outlets have closed their doors. Thousands of journalists have lost their jobs, and that represents a lot of information uh, that has not been covered by journalists in different regions of the country. Today, I'm announcing the next steps for the Online News Act. Google wanted certainty about the amount of compensation it would have to pay to Canadian news outlets, and I can say today that Google will be compensating our news organization with $100 million annually, and it will be uh, indexed to inflation. Also, uh, Canada reserves the right to reopen our regulation if there are better agreements struck elsewhere in the world. Heritage Minister Pascal Saint-Ange announcing a deal with Google on Parliament Hill earlier today. Kevin Desjardins is the president of the Canadian Association of Broadcasters, which represents private broadcasters. We reached him in Ottawa. 
Kevin, we just heard Minister Saint-Ange talk about the state of the industry and news organizations shuddering. So is this the deal that's going to save Canadian media? Well, I don't think that this deal in and of itself is going to save Canadian media. Uh, we certainly know that there is a crisis in uh, in news in Canada, and and this is one important step uh, that that we can take in order to be able to find funding to be able to keep journalists in newsrooms. It's not the end, uh, and I don't think it was ever envisioned to be uh, a sort of silver bullet uh, for this uh, for this challenge, but it is important to ensure that uh, uh, the foreign digital platforms uh, are not uh, blocking uh, Canadian news and uh, are helping to fund it over the longer term. The government is declaring victory in this, uh, in saying that Google's agreed to pay, you know, this hundred million dollar per year. Uh, fund to Canadian media. But, I mean, the, earlier this year, the federal government estimated that that number should be around $172 million. What do you make of that discrepancy? Did, did the government get cold feet here? No, I mean, I think that, uh, that Google uh, certainly had a tremendous amount of bargaining power and, uh, and, and they pushed hard. We always knew that they were going to. I think that they recognize the fact that Canada is going to help to set a uh, template for uh, what happens in the rest of the world. And so, you know, from a business point of view, I can certainly understand where Google was coming from. Um, you know, we we certainly would have liked a higher figure, uh, but uh, we recognize the challenges that the government was up against on this and, and um, certainly think that... Uh, uh, the hundred million uh, uh, that can be uh, directed to Canadian news organizations is something that is going to be able to help. Can we just explore that bargaining power that you talk about that Google has? Because there, there, there are two main tranches to it. The timing, right? We we had the Online News Act was set to go into effect on December 19th, uh, and Google had said it would just pull the plug on sharing Canadian news. Then there was just the sheer market share of, of Google that it can afford to just say, we're going to do that. Um, can you give us a s- sense of what the ban had it gone through if google had pulled the plug what that might have meant for the private companies that you represent you know i i've heard my members say things uh, along the lines of that this would be disastrous for them uh we certainly know that you know the way that google operates in so many uh facets of the digital world that uh, that for a lot of them it, it would really be uh, incredibly difficult for them to continue to get their news out to Canadians. Um, certainly, if uh, search and, uh, and and other features were blocking Canadian news, so you know, uh, so it would have, I think, been very difficult. I mean, equally, uh, I think it would have been very difficult on the platform. And you know, for as much as uh, we haven't seen Meta be willing to come back to the table uh, as of yet. Uh, I think that uh, anyone who has seen what's happened uh, to Meta over the past four months since they began blocking news, um, people's, uh, you know, and I say this with a great deal of irony, their their news feeds are filled with misinformation, disinformation, and sort of garbage level information um, uh, that that uh, that I think is really uh, weakening the value of that platform for Canadians. And and that weakening, I think, also led to 
uh, an imbalance of power with Google in this the, these negotiations. It, now that it's through, and I know we haven't had a ton of time to digest this, but who do you think won? It, w- did Google win? Did the Canadian government win? Is it somewhere in between? You know, in the end, what I hope is that Canadians will win. And I, I hope that uh, what this means is that there are more journalists uh, that are able to stay employed in Canadian newsrooms and able to reflect the news that's happening, you know, in their communities and, uh, and across the country and around the world back to Canadians uh, with that Canadian perspective. So, you know, I think the big losers would have been Canadians. I think it's the the big loser would have been democracy in Canada if we don't have uh, journalists in 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 newsrooms, um, uh, you know, who are who are providing uh, that news gathering and, and analysis that Canadians value and need, and, uh, and and so that's who I think ultimately uh, won in the end here. Uh, we should note, of course, that the CBC, uh, like other news companies, stands to make money from this. Do you have a sense of how the money from Google put into – it'll go into a common fund, right, of $100 million per year? How is that going to be distributed? You know, I, I, those are some of the details that I think that we and and our members are very interested in knowing and, and how that's going to be – uh, how, how it is going to be distributed. I, I think that there's still work to do, both in terms of the, the regulations, uh, in terms of identifying um, uh, precisely what the distribution formula will be, and, and I think certainly setting up some governance and administration around a, a collective that will help to distribute those funds. But, you know, ultimately what we're really hopeful of is that you know, all the various stakeholders, be they print or digital or broadcast or community radio or whoever is at the table, that people see the the, the real purpose and goal of all of this, which is to keep uh, journalists in newsrooms. Well, there's lots more to watch for on this. Thanks for, for speaking with us today. Thank you for your time. Kevin Desjardins is the president of the Canadian Association of Broadcasters. He's in Ottawa. There are accusations tonight that a Sikh separatist movement leader has been targeted on North American soil again. Today, in an unsealed indictment, U.S. prosecutors laid out the case against an Indian national who's facing murder for hire charges. It's alleged that he was instructed by an Indian government employee to arrange the murder of a Sikh separatist in New York. According to the indictment, that employee has described himself as a senior field officer with responsibilities in security management and intelligence. It also says the assassination plans were being made around the time Hardeep Singh Nijjar was murdered outside a temple in Surrey, British Columbia. In that case, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said there were credible allegations that India was involved. Dmitry Sevastopoulos is a Financial Times correspondent who's been reporting on this story. We reached him in D.C. Dmitry, you broke news of this alleged plot last week. What are some of the new details in this now unsealed indictment that stood out for you? Well, this indictment is incredible. I mean, it's almost like a script for a movie. The main line is that an Indian official allegedly hired an Indian national. The Indian national then contacted a criminal associate of his who turned out was a confidential source for U.S. law enforcement. That source then introduced uh, the Indian national, whose name is Gupta, 
to a purported hitman who it turned out was actually working for um, was a U.S. law enforcement member. They then spent several weeks plotting to kill a Sikh activist in New York City whose uh, surname is Panun. Uh, the plot was eventually foiled, but the details of, of how they tried to kill him, the amount of money that was involved, and the what appears to be a connection with the murder of Nijar in June is really incredible. Yeah, the, the murder of Hardeep Singh Nijjar in BC plays a huge role throughout this, even sort of sparking uh, the the go-ahead for the, the assassination in the U.S. Have I got that right? So we had reported previously that President Joe Biden had raised both the Panun case, you know, the plot that was thwarted, and also the killing of Nijjar when he met Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi at the G20 in New Delhi in September. But what this indictment says is that the Indian official who was liaising with the defendant, uh, Mr. Gupta, and, you know, and they were talking about this assassination plot in America, not in Canada. Hours after the murder of Nijar, this Indian official sends a video to Gupta, and the video shows Nijar's bloody body kind of slumped over in his vehicle after he'd been shot. So, again, this is just an allegation and an indictment, but it suggests that there is a campaign to assassinate Sikh separatists, and it links very clearly the Najjar case with this um, foiled plot in, in the U.S. And then because they recruited basically an undercover agent to do this for them, you, you can see in the indictment, they have text messages, phone calls, photos, like the reams of documentation of this are, are really quite remarkable. Yeah, the, I mean, the conversations that have been intercepted, the phone calls, um, the language where at one point uh, Gupta says, you know, something like uh, kill him, brother, or finish him, brother. Right. You know, there's a photograph of so the, the Indian official offered to pay a hundred thousand U.S. dollars for the uh, planned assassination of Mr. Panun. Uh, they actually paid fifteen thousand dollars as an advance payment, and there's a photograph of that money being handed over inside a car. So the, the detail here is incredible, and I think it partly explains why there's kind of a contrast between the way the Indian government responded to uh, Prime Minister Trudeau's allegations in September, where they kind of dismissed it as absurd and publicly didn't take it seriously, to the way they're responding here, because they they have, you know, there's actual detail that it's very hard for them to just brush aside. How has uh, India responded to these allegations, especially the details in this now unsealed indictment? Well, last week when we initially reported the story, the Indians, at first they didn't comment. Then the White House came out and said publicly after our story they were taking this issue very seriously. The Indians then came out and said, well, the U.S. has some current concerns about you know drugs and hitmen and, and organized crime, suggesting that it was really nothing to do with the Indian government. Uh, I think what's clear here is the Americans are saying we think a Indian government employee who may be an intelligence operative is involved, and so the Indians are having to respond. They don't really have a choice. I think one of the big differences is that the last time I was reporting on the case in Canada, uh, what I was told by multiple people was when senior Canadian officials went to India to raise these concerns, including directly with uh, Prime Minister Modi, which which uh, Prime Minister Trudeau did, the Canadian officials didn't actually give anything on paper to the Indians. They basically described the allegations, but didn't show them anything on paper because of concerns about jeopardizing the legal process and the investigation back in Canada. 
you know, in this case, we now have an indictment. So everything's written down. And as you said, these amazingly colorful exchanges uh, between the, the different characters involved just make it very hard to, as I said earlier, just to brush it aside. India, you know, is kind of exposed here and really has to, uh, to step up. Today, Canada's foreign minister is being asked some pretty pointed questions about why the U.S. was able to foil a plot like this, but Canada was not. How important do you think that question is? I think it's very difficult to know because, uh, you know, in, in this case, one of the one of the kind of unanswered questions is the agency in America in, in the U.S. that thwarted the plot was actually the Drug Enforcement Agency. So there was a kind of a drug connection. This guy Gupta is allegedly involved in drug tra- drug trafficking and things like that. So it's possible that they were following him for other reasons, and in the course of that investigation or monitoring him, they discovered this other plot. Now, it's possible that in, in Canada there wasn't a similar kind of parallel operation going on. But I think without knowing the full details, it's it, it's very easy to say, why didn't Canada know? But until you actually know the real details, I think uh, it's it's uh, foolish to speculate about that. There, There's a lot of talk in this country about how the, the Canadian government would need to address and balance out the need to continue have relations with with India. Uh, how is that playing out on the U.S. side? Like, what interests are the U.S. trying to balance out right now? Well, I think it's even more pronounced in the U.S. because you know the White House, the Biden administration, as you know, has been expending a huge amount of energy to to broaden and deepen relations with India to serve as a counterweight uh, towards China in the Indo Pacific. And you know, one of the arguments is India is the biggest democracy in in the world, and we need them on side to counter China. But it becomes a lot more difficult to make that argument when the Chinese or supporters of the Chinese come back and say, we hear you, but actually the the country trying to assassinate Canadian and U.S. citizens on Canadian and U.S. soil is not actually China, it's India. So the administration is in a bind here. And, you know, I think it's too early to say what long-term impact it will have on this effort to kind of woo India. But it's certainly complicating things at the moment. Well, we have to leave it there, but really appreciate your insight on this. Thank you. No, thank you. Dmitry Sevastopoulos is the U.S.-China correspondent for the Financial Times. He's in D.C. Drew Ortiz seems like the perfect guy to review sports gear. His author bio says he spends his weekends camping, hiking, or just back on his parents' farm. And his photo shows a generically handsome, rugged, young dude. But if you've made a cool new kind of volleyball that you'd like Mr. Ortiz to write about, you should know that he doesn't actually exist. He may be credited with writing for Sports Illustrated, but his whole persona is a fiction. The bio is baloney, and his photo is available on a website that sells fake AI-generated headshots. And the reporter who uncovered all that believes the writing may be AI-generated too. Mr. Ortiz's writing and other articles credited to fake writers by Sports Illustrated. The magazine has issued a statement saying that, according to an initial investigation, the allegations that it published AI-generated content are untrue. Maggie Harrison broke the story on the tech news site Futurism. We reached her in New York City. Maggie, I've read your stories online, and now i got to admit, I feel a little compelled to ask just before we get started here, you are, in fact, a real human reporter, right? 
I am, yes. Flesh and blood, I promise. It, it becomes so interesting because, you know, you read that volleyball review. It was credited to this Drew Ortiz. And when you looked at them, what is it about those articles that kind of set off alarm bells for you? I, I do want to preface that by saying that we were looking for it. We had been following this story for several weeks. And so we were on the lookout for this kind of content. And when we did stumble across this, that's Sports Illustrated. When you look under the hood a little bit, it all comes together pretty quickly. So looking at the content itself, like that volleyball review, the one that we highlight in the article, that just is so clearly bad, but not just <laughs> bad, it's weird. It's as if this alien came to Earth. It has every book that's ever been written about volleyball in its brain, but yet has no actual concept of volleyball or sports or like physical movement in general. Right. It, it's just that like strange alien weirdness that comes with a lot of synthetic content. And then when you looked at the actual authors and the fake authors that we were able to find, you know, it, you're, you're not really, again, as a reader, you're generally not looking on a website like Sports Illustrated to see, or anywhere for the most part, to see whether, you know, the byline and its headshot are real. But we couldn't find a sound publishing history or social media presence for the names. That's where we looked first. And when we couldn't find that, we ended up going into the actual bio and, you know, looking at, hmm, what's here? It, it's a lot of information about Drew Ortiz, who, you know, lives on the farm and has all this knowledge about adventure sports and can protect you from the perils of nature, I think it says, um, and which is why he's good at recommending you fishing equipment and hiking tools and camping and backyard games. Right. But there was no real information about him in any sense of, you know, where is the farm and where did he go to school and what else does he write about? And then we looked at the actual photos. We were able to trace those directly back to a website that sells AI-generated headshots. See, I even, I looked at those photos and before I fully read the piece, I thought they were like some sort of stock photo and you could maybe trace those back. But those were AI too. They were AI too, yes. And, you know... That, that was really, like, after after all the other things, you know, the weirdness of the content and the strangeness of the bios, but tracing the faces back to um, that website, that was really the kicker for us in our reporting. Okay, so the article gets published. Sports Illustrate issues a statement, and, and I'm going to read it here, but bear with me because it's a little complicated. Uh, they say it was, quote, not accurate, unquote, that they had published AI-generated articles. They say they bought the content from a third-party contractor named Advon. Advon says their human authors use pen names to protect author privacy. Sports Illustrated says they don't condone the use of pseudonyms and have removed the content while they investigate further. Beyond the sort of word salad nature of that, what do you make of the statement? I want to say first and foremost that we do stand by reporting that it is accurate and not false. I think that the statement, like you said, it's word salad. Um, we reached out to the arena group, the owner of Sports Illustrated, several times throughout the course of the reporting. They never responded to us, but they did put out this public statement after the piece was published. And, you know, we've also been in contact with Admon Commerce, and they've reiterated effectively the same claims. But first of all, the sources that we spoke to for our story, they have painted a very different picture of what the the content creation process looked like here. They have alleged to us that AI was used. And at the end of the day, it's a very strange practice, no matter how you look at it. In what world do you need a nom de plume to pen volleyball cart reviews? Like that, right. that is just on its surface. That's just a very, very strange practice that is inherently misreading to consumers. If I am reading this, you know, this blog and I'm looking, I'm really a person looking for a product. And I am 
looking at this space and this expertise that this person supposedly has, and I'm buying a product based on that, if that person isn't real, I am misled and lied to as a reader. Uh, Your follow-up to this was, in a weird way, almost more interesting than the original piece in that you you really touched on how this affects staff writers, their union. Uh, How have they been reacting to your reporting? I think that they understandably have reacted quite strongly, and they reacted. The union put out a statement very quickly. Um, and, and I think, yeah, on the reader side and the writer side, we've heard a lot from readers who have been very disturbed and very troubled by the report, which, you know, again, this, this is one of these most storied magazines in history, you can argue. I mean, JFK and William Faulkner have published in these pages. Now you have Drew Ortiz telling you that you need a volleyball to play volleyball. It's a very, it's a very sharp <laughs> fall from literary greatness. You know, as a writer myself, I, I wouldn't feel good if I'm adhering to basic journalistic standards and my parent company is publishing something that circumvents all of those. It's not just, you know, the AI content and the AI writers, but there's no disclosures anywhere. They never issued a correction, which is basic editorial practice. So, you know, as a writer, not it's not just you're working hard, but you're working hard to adhere to standards that, you know, do right by you and the magazine and the readers and your owner isn't doing that. That's that really troubling. You said uh, at the outset of this investigation that you were out looking for AI-generated content. Are you finding more of this type of material out there? So we have we have a lot of ongoing reporting happening. We have a lot of forthcoming reporting that will be coming out in several weeks that will address that. Um, <laughs> but I will say that, you know, if it's in Sports Illustrated, <laughs> I think it's fair to start looking for it elsewhere, if that makes sense. It does make sense. Maggie, thank you for this. Really appreciate it. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Take care. Maggie Harrison is a staff writer for Futurism. We reached her in New York City. Right, right. Oh, hello. I was just doing a thing I do sometimes for my own protection, which is to remind myself of things that are not good and should be avoided. That one was a bear on cocaine. And uh, here's another one. That one's a bit quieter, but equally terrifying. That was the sound of the snake you sat on while hiding from the bear on cocaine, a snake which was already feeling trapped and over-caffeinated. This week in Tasmania, snake catcher Olivia Dykstra found a venomous lowland copperhead with a can of Rockstar energy drink stuck on its head. Now, somehow, Ms. Dykstra found it in her heart to free the snake, which is admirable and terrifying. I mean, at least bears on cocaine are loud and covered in white powder. Venomous snakes on energy drinks are just out there, quietly twitching and agitatedly hissing about how they haven't slept in days and their heart is pounding so hard it feels like their scales are going to pop off. But I digress. Ms. Dykstra's bravery reminded us of other acts of heroism towards animals whose heads are stuck in things, in particular, an animal whose other end presents its own danger. From our archives, here's guest host Rachel Giza speaking to First Lieutenant Mike Shaw of the Michigan State Police, who explains how his team approached the odoriferous operation. 
Well, the first thing that we did nasty is call animal control because uh, nobody wants to mess around with a savage skunk or whatever <laughs> that actually means. But uh, when animal control told us that uh, they don't handle those type of calls, uh, one of our, our sayings is that we uh, provide service with a purpose, and that's for humans and skunks alike. So both troopers decided that uh, they weren't going to allow the skunk to run around with a yogurt cup on his head. So they uh, they looked at each other for as far as their seniority and uh, who was older and who wasn't. And the uh, <laughs> older, smarter trooper probably uh, took a uh, took a wooden rod and he kind of guided the skunk in a certain direction where they wanted it to go. And the younger, faster trooper uh, kind of snuck up from the front of the skunk there and yanked it off his head. And they both ran as fast as they could. And did they, did either one get sprayed? Um, they didn't. I think uh, the skunk actually kind of looked at him, gave him a quick little nod of appreciation, knowing that uh, he'd just been rescued by the Michigan State Police and uh, and took off into the wood line. Um, in researching this story, we actually learned that skunks get their heads stuck in containers a lot more often than you think. Last year, Rochester police had to help a skunk with another yogurt container stuck on its head. Lieutenant Shaw, does this surprise you? What is going on with skunks getting things stuck on their head? Um, no, it doesn't, because that particular one in Rochester is probably about uh, maybe 25 miles or so from where our skunk was. Now, uh, they weren't related because we did ask the skunk if he'd ever been to Rochester before <laughs> he hadn't. So um, I, I guess it's just their natural curiosity. These animals are very curious, and they get their heads stuck in all kinds of stuff all the time. From 2016, that was First Lieutenant Mike Shaw of the Michigan State Police speaking with As It Happens guest host Rachel Giza. From CBC Podcasts and The Fifth Estate, Brainwashed is a multi-part investigation into the CIA's experiments in mind control. From the Cold War and MK Ultra to the so-called War on Terror, we learn about a psychiatrist who used his patients as human guinea pigs and what happens when the military and medicine collide. Listen to Brainwashed on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. In Afghanistan, girls over the age of 11 can't go to school by Taliban decree. But the country's former education minister says that doesn't mean they have to stop learning. She's calling for countries to engage with the Taliban and explore using the country's vast system of religious schools to help support girls learning in the country. That proposal is obviously not uncontroversial since many countries oppose engaging with the Taliban at all. Rangina Hamidi was Afghanistan's education minister until the Taliban takeover in August 2021. She left shortly thereafter. We reached her in Dubai. Ms. Hamidi, what makes you think that these madrasas could potentially help fill the educational gap faced by older girls in Afghanistan? Afghanistan has always had madrasa education running parallel to the so-called modern education inside the schools, the buildings that the international community funded. And so, as I have focused and I've learned that in the past two years, there's more emphasis on madrasa education. So if that is a space that is open, if that is a space where girls can and are receiving education, of course, the definition of education must be cleared. My proposal is why not look at this possibility 
as an avenue for continuing to provide spaces or, or consider spaces where girls can continue their education journeys. I'm glad you made the distinction between the more modern schools, a lot that were funded by the West uh, over the last 20 years, and and the idea of madrasas. There are spaces where girls beyond the sixth grade are getting these educations now, and you're suggesting let's try to expand that on a more national level. Is that fair? I think it's fair, but what I'm also saying is if in the past two-plus years we've not been able to figure out or work out a solution to the ban, and these are the spaces that are allowing girls, why can't we challenge our minds to think outside of the box and look at this alternative space? When we think about Afghanistan, we think about Taliban, I think we often think about something of a monolith. How likely is it, do you think, that you can find support within the Taliban that might allow this to, to work? Like any group in the world, there is no no such thing as a monolith. Um, my recent travels to Afghanistan showed me that some leaders in the community, some people in the communities where they're starting to invest in and explore the opportunity of starting madrasas have actually shared that their version of a madrasa that they're creating and investing their funds in is not to have a madrasa that is solely dedicated to just religious education. They're interested in including computers and sciences and mathematics and languages. And so that actually gave me hope that if there is the will to expand the definition of how a madrasa is traditionally understood, then why not consider it as an alternative or as an option, not alternative, but as an option to the current context of how girls are living in growing up in Afghanistan. So where where does and how important is the international communities fit into to this as a solution? You know, the, uh, I as an Afghan citizen, as an Afghan woman, um, am really questioning the political will of the international community, particularly around the issue of girls' education. If we truly care about the technical access to education and allowing girls to learn, then I really think we need to stop worrying about the politics around where and how we educate girls, but explore any and every opportunity that we have as an international community to engage girls in learning. The other argument that I'm also making is that it has taken more than two years for international community to figure out what to do with Afghanistan. There is no viable alternative to the current situation on table. And as an Afghan citizen, as an Afghan mother, and as an Afghan woman, our girls have lost way too much time not having the opportunity to learn, not just these past two plus years, but even prior to that. Remember COVID. So we need to be open to explore any and every opportunity and not further delay the education of girls. A big part of that reticence, I think, in the West and and among some in Afghanistan as well, is the question of how the West and 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 the international community should deal, whether they should deal with the Taliban, given the history of contempt for human rights, especially when it comes to gender. What what do you say to them? Well, my question to that rhetoric is, why was that not a question raised when in two thousand seventeen? 
the majority of the international community, including major UN organizations present and working in Afghanistan, were actually engaged in the peace talks with the Taliban. I am not convinced international human rights abuse prevents the international community from working with and or talking with or you know engaging with a group that they hold responsible for human rights abuses. And, and fair point. I think the pushback on all of that would be that the Taliban initially agreed to a lot of things uh, when the Americans and the Canadians and the Brits pulled out. Among those, keeping girls' schools open and then reneged on those promises. So I, I, I think the pushback would be why engage with them when they, they've negotiated in bad faith to begin with. Well, and, and unfortunately, I'm not in the position to... Fair comment on that because I was not part of those negotiations and agreements. My issue is for more than two years, the Afghan population, particularly 50% of the population being women and girls, are waiting for a window of opportunity. And world leaders are failing and have failed them. And what I'm trying to do as an Afghan citizen who's, who's devoted and committed to more than two decades of my adult career life to Afghanistan, my father sacrificed himself for the country and for this international community mission to build Afghanistan with democratic principles and democratic values and democratic systems. I refuse to allow the same international community to, in a sense, hold me hostage for not considering options to serve my people, because serving my people, and particularly my women and my girls, is not serving either the Taliban regime or any other political regime, in my opinion. Well, listen, I, I think this is a, a, a hugely important discussion, not just for your country, but for ours as well. And I'm really glad to get you on to speak about this. So thank you very much. Thank you very much for your time. Rangina Hamidi is the former education minister of Afghanistan. We reached her in Dubai. After 17 days underground, a group of construction workers in India awoke to see the sun this morning. Last night, rescuers extracted the 41 workers, who were trapped when a landslide collapsed a mountain tunnel they were working on in northern India. The rescue faced a number of serious complications, including technical challenges and the risk of seismic activity. Arnold Dix is the president of the International Tunneling and Underground Space Association. He traveled from Australia to help with the rescue. We reached him in Chiniasur, India. Arnold, when you arrived, you said that these construction workers would be rescued unhurt by Christmas. So did it feel like Christmas yeah. morning when they first started coming out of the tunnel yesterday? Absolutely. I mean, pretty much a stretch target to begin with. A number of my colleagues thought I was completely demonstrably a lunatic for saying it, particularly on national television to 1.4 billion people. But <laughs> I just thought we'd be able to do it. And we did. The relief as these guys came out of there must have just been like a tidal wave. Do we do we know like how are all the workers doing today? 
yeah, apparently they're doing really well. They're tough, like they're way tough. And they were really happy. And in fact, they sort of, we, we had all these plans of how they'd be rescued and very elaborate your little trolleys and um, places to put your arms and little guards on your elbows. We had lighting in there so they wouldn't get scared and anyway, all sorts of stuff. But when we actually broke through, they just all ran to our end. It was done. We're like, oh, they're all here already. So it like just really resilient, really tough guys and happy as happy to see us. I rumor has it I might have even shed a tear or two because <laughs> I was I just think that's it's it's like a modern miracle. Like if you're gonna write a children's book on, you know, mountain uh, takes workers hostage, you know, lets them be fed food through a pipe, um, you know, all this sort of stuff. Like, it's a really cool story. What, it has what a happy was, ending, which is nice. What What was the moment for you, though? Was it the realization that, oh, my gosh, I think we're going to be able to pull this off, or when you saw them walking out? Uh, I had – it was the only one I was interested in was number 41. Right. Because, actually – uh, history had told us that virtually everything we did would fail. Um, I mean, we never thought it would fail, but it was a, a really steep learning curve as we sort of experimented with the rock, could see how it behaved. Uh, we were dealing with the data was showing us that the mountain, and still right to this moment, could have a major catastrophic fail in there. So it meant we knew we, like me, could be dead, and, and so could all the people on the other side that was one scenario um and so we as a team and this is everybody were really really careful we were having to juggle really complex um technical options right. to try and get an evacuation and our emergency pipe that we got in where we could fire like lentils and peanuts and stuff to them it only had a limited length so if if our rescue triggered another collapse we could lose our lifeline so oh, wow. we're, we're having trouble here like it was really hard and at the same time the media is saying well why haven't you done this and what about this and why haven't you done the other so we were really taking it really carefully because because we're dealing with a human life you can't just re-weld it right you know like if you if you kill somebody you can't even get medical attention to them and on the, I, th I think it was the thirteenth day, the drilling machine broke down at, at a mere what sixty some feet from the the men. How worried were you about what that was going to mean? Yeah, well that that wasn't good. Well, it wasn't the first time. I mean that that machine had blown up a few times, and right. we we'd managed to to get it going again. But the one that I just couldn't believe was seeing this machine lift itself off the ground and rip the bolts out of the ground because we were now so far into this avalanche material we were running out of power and we were well outside the sort of torque thrust um sort of limits that we should should be operating it in so um and then of course it blew up it didn't just like blow up it blew its bearings out it blew its clutch out and oh, it wow. ripped itself out of the ground yeah it's like catastrophic at one point were rescuers digging by hand have i got that right yeah, yeah, that's actually how we did it. That that so, was the final push. Yeah, yeah, that's how we did it. So here's here's the rub. In the end, the best way to mine in there, because the ground is just so unstable and everything is so dangerous, was to stick a man in a pipe 
and get them to go down the end with their hands, scoop out a little bit of rock, and then we pull it back out. And we advance the tunnel 100 millimetres at a time using men with their hands to get rock. That's how we did it. Crazy stuff. Does the accident and that aspect of the rescue, I mean, does it highlight the risks and the working conditions as India expands its infrastructure? Like the... we, we've seen a lot of attention drawn to the the risks inherent to this type of development. There, we've seen bridges collapse. We've seen uh, moments like this. What what do you hope this incident and the rescue do to the cause of better working environment, better worker safety? Yeah, I think it's a really good question, and it's something that I've discussed with people, you know, able to influence that sort of thing. My perspective is you've got a country in transition, um, really rapidly embarking on development, so high-speed rail, this sort of tunnel, um, very aggressive uh, hydro schemes, uh, sewerage schemes, water schemes, highways, like everything all at once. And I think this is a real wake-up call, and indeed this is how the government's described to me, it's a wake-up call for the country to get its contractual arrangements in place so that we can see better quality workmanship and you see companies prepared to spend more money where there's a question. But I I get the feeling that the old ways of doing things, it's time to, you know, rethink them. Not not just because of this particular event, but just it's time. You know, the country's really growing up. It's just amazing to see. There'll be huge lessons learned out of what's happened here. It's just, it's an incredible story. Congratulations and thank you. Really appreciate hearing all of your amazing stories. Thanks for reaching out to me. Arnold Dix is the president of the International Tunneling and Underground Space Association. He was part of the tunnel rescue in Uttarkashi. We reached him in Chinialasore, India. It's tempting, especially at this time of year, to buy something you've been coveting for a long time with just the click of a button. But for postal workers in rural parts of the U.S., our collective obsession with online shopping is creating chaos, so much so that a group of U.S. Postal Service workers in the small community of Bemidji, Minnesota, recently staged a symbolic protest, hoping to draw attention to an agreement they claim obliges them to prioritize Amazon packages over other types of mail. As essential workers, they're not allowed to strike, but they said it was essential that they draw attention to the situation somehow because it's having huge consequences for them and their neighbors. Dennis Nelson is a veteran mail carrier in Bemidji, Minnesota. That's where we reached him. Dennis, give us a bit of a sense of how delivering the mail today compares to delivering the mail back when you started doing this. Well, there's definitely been a decrease in mail volume. Uh, 20 years ago when I started, it was tremendous. It would take hours and hours to sort it and then to deliver it. But over the years, that's gone downhill, and the parcel volume has steadily increased. And especially with the pandemic a few years ago, uh, the parcel volume increased dramatically. Uh, Now, with the introduction of Amazon delivery out of our office, it's absolutely overwhelming. I bet. And, And what's the impact that's having on you and your fellow mail carriers? Well, the the first impact was, uh, well, the very first day that we walked into the post office and saw those packages, thousands and thousands of Amazon packages. 
we were absolutely overwhelmed. And right on the spot, several of our employees just said, no, I'm not doing this and oh, quit. Wow. When, when would and that have we've been? Had, it was at the beginning of November. Uh, I believe the first week of November. I can't give you a specific of this date. Yes. Okay. And the, the impact since uh, we've been doing this, and we've been forced to work 12-hour days, six days a week, in order to accommodate these Amazon packages, uh, it's been absolutely detrimental to everybody. Uh, one of my coworkers even made the comment that his wife is now a single parent. Uh, we've got a city carrier, a young woman who's got two young children. She never gets to see them. And then you've got people my age. I'm pushing 60. The physical aspect of it is I, I feel it every day. And what what about the people in Bemidji who are they I guess they have to wait longer for things that aren't Amazon packages. Well, since we've had so many people quit and we are extremely short-staffed, we have mail routes where the mail is being curtailed for two or three days at a time before it can be delivered because the Amazon packages are taking priority. And just to be clear, have you been told explicitly that you need to prioritize Amazon deliveries? Well, from what I'm, this is just my understanding, and I don't have specifics on it, is that an agreement was reached between the Postal Service and Amazon, I believe back in 2014 or 2015. And slowly, Amazon has been uh, introduced into more and more post offices around the nation. And it was finally introduced up here. And we were immediately told that it was our number one priority. A spokesperson for the U.S. Postal Service has said, and this is a quote, that the agency does not prioritize the delivery of packages from Amazon or other customers. That doesn't seem to jibe with what you're hearing and what you're seeing. Well, the only thing I can think of is that the Postal Service is trying to honor its agreement with Amazon, but the Postal Service is not situated to handle this kind of volume. And we're, we're not talking about just the volume. We're talking about the sizes of the packages as well. Hmm. Some of these are just massive. And most of the rural carriers, like myself, we use our own private vehicles and we cannot fit these packages in our vehicles to affect our, the deliveries. So now our customers have to drive all the way into the post office to pick their packages up. You know, the the heart of this issue is how much money the U.S. Postal Service has been losing. And it, it has it's not disclosing the terms of its agreement with Amazon, but it's clearly trying to find a way to, to recoup. I think it lost six and a half billion dollars last year alone. It, in the face of such losses, what is the solution? If, if this current deal isn't it, what what should be done? None of us actually have a, a problem with doing the Amazon deliveries, but nothing was in place before the Amazon deliveries just showed up. And I'm a, a, kind of ashamed to say that our, our union never was able to negotiate that minimum staffing requirements be in place before Amazon was introduced. Hmm. Yeah. And within that, like you do have a union, but you're also, as Postal Service workers, not allowed to strike. Uh, I understand earlier this month, you and some of the other workers took part in a picket outside of your work hours. How was that received? Oh, very well. The community uh, received it fantastically. The support from our community has been overwhelming. And well, the Postal Service, from what I understand, does not call it a symbolic strike. That's the word we were using or a picket. They were calling it a protest. 
So they're kind of uh, poo-pooing it and laughing it off. Right. Several of your colleagues have been reluctant to speak up about this publicly. Why are you doing so? Well, I'm of the mindset that nothing changes unless somebody's willing to stand up and say enough is enough. And the Postal Service has always had kind of a, a boot on the neck of their employees in the fact that talking about the post office, speaking about the post office in social media or to the media like you is actually considered grounds for termination. Hmm. And when I've seen my employee, uh, fellow employees in our, in our facility and just sobbing, crying, because it's so overwhelming, the hour requirements, the, uh, the six days a week working, uh, I just said enough is enough. And if I have to be the scapegoat, uh, I'll, I'll be that person. Do you do you worry about being a scapegoat? Have you have you faced any retribution at this point? Not yet, but quite frankly, I'm expecting it. Um, I'm expecting management on the district level to come down and show up one day and point at me and say you're fired. Really? But eh? if it gets the changes, yeah. But if it gets the changes done that are necessary, because right now, you know, we just had the Black Friday sales and then Cyber Monday sales. The real parcel volume hasn't even hit us yet. Right. And none of us are going to survive this. We're all currently looking for other jobs. We're, I believe this morning, uh, we were doing something like five to 7,000 packages through our facility. That's on top of our normal mail volume and our normal deliveries. So considering the, the volume that's coming our way, I, I cannot comprehend it. Well, listen, I'm really glad to get your side of the story and understand what's going on. Thank you for doing this, and thank you for speaking with us. Yeah, you have a great day. Take care. Bye-bye. Dennis Nelson is a veteran mail carrier in Bemidji, Minnesota. That's where we reached him. A USPS spokesperson denied that the Postal Service prioritizes Amazon deliveries and told us that the agency's, quote, Delivering for America plan intends to accomplish the efficient delivery of first-class mail, supported by the increased delivery of packages through an improved network, unquote. This is Futile Regrets, a piece of orchestra music composed by an unknown prisoner at Auschwitz. For decades, the piece was collecting dust in the archives, but in 2015, while visiting the former death camp, 
Leo Geyer stumbled upon the collection of musical manuscripts that included this piece. And eight years later, this long, silent music can finally be heard. On Monday, Mr. Geyer's company, Constella Music, performed the piece for its 10th anniversary. Leo Geyer is a British composer and conductor. We reached him in London. Leo, we'll get into the history here in a moment, but can we just talk about what we just heard there as music first? What do you hear? Well, for me, this is music of the heart and it's clearly someone who is in great pain and trying their best to articulate in music what that really is emotionally how is it that we don't know the identity of of the composer i mean there is so much that is known so much that has been documented about every scrap of paper that came out the the fact that it wasn't well known by the time you got there seems remarkable Yes, it is remarkable. And the reason for it is because much of the music and indeed the musical instruments were destroyed when the camp was liquidated 80 years ago. And so what remains is fragments. And so it's very difficult to try and actually get to the music itself. I think the best way of describing it is a bit like 200 jigsaw puzzles all jumbled together and many of the pieces are in fact missing or broken, scorched. So to actually try and piece them together takes a lot of work and that's why I've been doing it for the last eight years. Right. (laughs) Can you you just retell the story of of how you came to find out that this sheet music existed in the first place? Of course. So I was commissioned to write a piece of music in memory of the Holocaust historian Sir Martin Gilbert. And as part of that process, I thought I would go to Auschwitz itself to try and get a sense of the gravity of his work. And I knew about the orchestras of Auschwitz before, and therefore I had a conversation with one of the archivists about them. And he then said in this very offhand way, oh yeah, well, you know, there's some manuscripts in the archive, but whatever, I'm sure he won't be interested in those. (laughs) And I I nearly fell over when he told me because I couldn't believe that such a thing could exist and that had been overlooked all of this time. And of course, it was then only when I started looking at it that I understood why that had been the case. One of the things that I've had to do is to cross-reference the music with testimonies to try and understand what music was being played at what time and by whom and for what purpose, so that it's been a study much much beyond just the manuscripts themselves so that I could really try and recreate the music of Auschwitz as closely as possible. Yeah, because the, the, the significance of music for people at Auschwitz was was really important and, and important to this as well. Yes, absolutely. And uh, this is one of the things that is a great surprise to, well, it was, in fact, to myself, as, as it is for everyone else, really, the, the significant role that music had in Auschwitz. So many prisoners would have been very familiar with the sound of an orchestra because they were playing marching music at, at every point when you had to march out to fields and factories and on the return. And the tragic thing is that on the return, many people had to carry the dead. And in the background, you'd be hearing this jolly marching music. I mean, it's unbelievable to think of a situation that would be any more macabre than that. And further to that is that we know that the orchestras were required to play for parties and openings of new areas of camps, again, playing this this very frivolous and light music. And the juxtaposition of that is just 
unbearable to imagine. But in the case of this piece that we've just heard is that there was also music making that was going on secretly for other musicians and indeed for some prisoners held away from earshot of soldiers. Now, you talked about how you were recruited to to do this musical project in the first place. You aren't Jewish or Polish. You're you're not the descendant of someone who was imprisoned at Auschwitz. What was it that made you decide to take on this project in the first place? Well, it was two things, really. The first was that when I first looked at Dario Menjale, this piece called Futile Regrets, I noticed something that sent goosebumps down my spine, and that was the handwriting. And the handwriting of this manuscript is identical to mine. And so when I saw it, I felt that it was my duty to finish it. And so that's what I set out to do. It must have been scary to to try to put this out into the world. What was the reception uh, like after the performance on Monday? Well, to my surprise is that a Holocaust survivor was actually in the audience on Monday and uh, he came up to me at the end of the performance and uh, said some, some very nice um, things, which I was very humbled by. And most importantly is that he spurred me on to to continue because this actually was just the first event of what I hope to be something much larger because, of course, we just gave this performance in London. I'm talking to you in Canada. There's obviously huge interest across the world for this music, and I, I want to make sure that people can hear this music and can access this music. If you could look back five years from now, what do you hope the world has learned or seen or experienced through this music? Well... I mean, again, looking back at myself is that I'm not from one of these groups who will really feel the Holocaust through their family and through their identity as as people. But I'm also a young person as well. I'm 31. And for me, the Holocaust was something that happened such a long time ago. And I always knew it was horrible. But I think I left it under a rock in in my mind Mm. before I started this project and accessed this music. And what I would hope that this project would do is to to make everyone feel that they can engage with that history and take hold of it and really make sure that we don't find ourselves repeating history in any way, shape or form. Well, I love listening to a recording of it. I do hope I get to hear it in person one of these days. Well, thank you very much and thank you for having me. Cheers. Leo Geyer is a British composer and conductor who has recreated music composed by an unknown prisoner at Auschwitz. We reached him in London. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show on the web at cbc.ca slash AIH. Thanks for listening. I'm Peter Armstrong. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.